I'm excited this morning uh, to be back. Had a great picnic last week. Enjoyed that. So much good food and fellowship. It was a little chilly, but we we persevered. And uh, sang, the sun came out as soon as we left. That was great. Um, <laughs> perfect timing. And uh, But man, it was good. It was good to hang out. But this morning we are back at church in the building. And um, I enjoy doing topical sermon series. It was what we've done the last little bit, we were in uh, the Praisey Sermon Series talking about worship, um, but where I feel uh, the most at home, and I think where I see our church flourish the most, is when we are preaching through a book of the Bible. And uh, so this morning, we're diving in, starting a new series, and you're going to say, how are you doing a series on this? Um, because it is a short book. And uh, so the name of the book is up there. If I ask everybody in the room, how do you say that? Probably all of you would say it. Um, and so I did go to YouTube, the authority on pronunciation. And so, so it's supposed to be Philemon. We usually would probably around here. I hear a lot of people say Philemon. Um, and I'll press in somewhere in the middle. It'll be like Philemon. All right. So that's probably what we're going to That's my best shot at Philemon. This is the letter uh, Paul wrote to, to Philemon. It's a short book. Um, but I was, as I was studying, I was thinking about it. I remember when I was a kid, uh, probably in middle school and high school, I started collecting basketball cards. And uh, there was, I got this guy's card one time, and his name was Spud Webb. Anybody Spud Webb? From back, oh, some got some Spud Webb lovers in here. And, um, and so for those of you like, what are you talking about? Uh, Spud Webb, he was 5'7", and he was in the NBA. And uh, I remember that giving me lots of hope. And... Um, <laughs> And so as I started to, to read about him and read his card, he was 5'7". He actually won the slam dunk contest in 1986 at 5'7". Pretty incredible. You can see it. Uh, here's an example here. Oh, it doesn't even look real. John, this young man has been so impressive oh. and a crowd with a standing ovation. I mean, pretty incredible, right? He had a vertical of 46 inches. I mean, standing still, he could just jump and go 46 inches in the air. Do you, I don't even know. Like, how do you even do that? And, and so I, I was reminded because th this book, and sometimes the most explosive things come in small packages. And so while Philemon is the shortest letter that Paul wrote, it reminded me of Spud Webb. I know you're probably like, man, our pastor has lost it. But it reminded me of this guy who you shouldn't even be able to dunk it, right? Most people five seven. If you can even dunk it, that's a miracle. Win the NBA slam dunk contest, next level. But this book that's only 25 verses, when I slowed down and I began to read it and study it, it's explosive. It is absolutely packed with truth that's life-transforming. And so while it would have been easy probably to preach one sermon on Philemon, uh, we're going to slow it down. And we're going to probably do at least three, maybe, maybe four. So when I reference it, I'm not going to say Philemon chapter one verse. It's just going to be Philemon verse. All right, it's just one chapter. So all I've got in this Bible is literally one page. Um, so I would encourage you, go read it and study. Now, this has been a hard one to preach because some of the most exciting things happen at the end of the chapter, I was like, I, gotta, like, I can't preach that yet. I can't preach that yet. I kind of had to keep coming back to the first little bit of this. And so I want you to understand a little bit of the, the backdrop here 
Uh, Philemon is an explosive book. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul and Silas had made it to a new town, and they were staying with a guy named Jason, and they were going and they were preaching in the synagogues, and they were, they were, they were riling things up, people were getting upset. In, in Acts 17, verse 6, it says the, the, those in charge, the rulers of the Sanhedrin, the religious, were looking for Paul and Silas. In verse 6, it says, But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city. Jason was the local guy hosting them at their house. Paul and Silas were staying there. And so the, the leaders dragged them to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. You see, as much as we wish the gospel was um, not confrontational and that it was just, um, just uh, to, to go along to get along gospel, we find here that the leaders of the church and the religious at the time said, man, these people are turning the world upside down. The gospel is disrupting the things in our community. It's disrupting hearts and lives, and therefore it's playing out in incredible ways. It's, it's revolutionizing lives. It's breaking down social barriers. It's, it's throwing open prison doors. Like th These people are turning the world upside down. And really, Jesus was turning the world upside down when he released the early church. Chris has got a friend, a guy he loves to listen to that does commentary, and Chris will say, no, they weren't turning it upside down. They were turning it right side up the way that God intended community to be, the way that God intended families to be, the way that God intended marriages to be, the way that God intended us to work and, and be in fellowship with people of other color and other races and, and all these broken things that were broken then, they're still broken here, but the church disrupts those things. And we see that very obvious in Philemon. It's a story of intrigue, and, and, and it is in 25 verses about a world that is being and has been turned upside down. A little bit of background on the story. Uh, it's going to be a little bit of a uh, spoiler alert, so I've got to kind of give you the, the crux before we can just do seven verses. You've got to know what's going on. Lehman was a, a, a man who got saved, likely under Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Uh, he was from Colossae, a town uh, that's now in Turkey. And uh, he moved back to Colossae. That's the, the letter written to the Colossians was the church at Colossae. We're going to find in a minute that church was meeting in Philemon's house. Okay, so he got saved under Paul. Uh, he was actually a wealthy man. At that time, uh, slavery was, uh, was everywhere. It was a normal part of life, a patriarch. If you owned a home, you had slaves. So he had this slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus either stole something or wronged him in some way and then ran away. He left. Um, and much like the heart of most of us, we have a heart that tends to want to run. Onesimus ran, and if, if, if he was born today and he had Google Maps and a car, <laughs> he runs all the way to Rome. And Rome at that time is the biggest city in the world. It is, it is the capital of the known world at the time. And he goes all the way to Rome thinking he can blend in and just go on with the rest of his life. And yet we serve a God who loves runaways and chases runaways. And no matter where you try to go, he's going to find you. He loves you that much. He leaves the 99 to find the one. We're going to get to that in another sermon. See, I want to start preaching that, but we're going to get there. So he runs all the way to Rome. And, and Rome, right at that time that he gets there, Paul is actually in prison in Rome for preaching the gospel. 
probably in house arrest. And we're going to find later on in this letter that Onesimus comes to faith under Paul's ministry in this prison. Somehow Onesimus gets all the way to Rome, thinks he's running from everything. God meets him there, flips his world upside down, disrupts, takes a runaway and sends him back home. Paul, knowing Philemon, his master, pens this letter, gives it to Onesimus, the slave, says, go back. We don't know why he makes that decision. We don't know if Onesimus says, I just feel like now that I've given my life to Christ, I need to go back and make this right, or Paul instructs him to. We don't know why, but we know he goes back. So he takes this letter, and like I said, if he had Google Maps in a car, it's 29 hours. All right, that's four days. If you drive eight hours a day, roughly, and you stop at Bucky's a couple times. All right, y'all still here? You're awake. That's good. I don't know how long it took him then. Maybe a month. I don't know. But he thought he had escaped it all. Some of you here this morning think you've escaped it all. You've run away, uh, and God loves you right where you're at, and. Um, and so he, he, Paul's sending him back with this letter, and really the crux, one of my the favorite passages here, is that only God could do this in a, in a social system, a structure that's broken like slavery. In verse 15, he says, Perhaps the reason he was separated you from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. Oh, man, if that doesn't get your, the, the spirit flowing inside of you, he says, No longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. So we're going to get to that later. Let's start with verse 1. I'm probably an okay place to start, right? Verse 1, not chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, in verse 1, I want, to, I want to just give you this thought before we jump into it. Uh, commentator Tim Mackey said, The implications of the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ The implications are personal, but they are never private. They are personal. They're going to meet you in deep places of the things that only know you know about your heart and your past. And like this is going to be between you and God, very personal. That he says, I know you uh, better than anybody. There's a song called Fully Known. He says, I know you better than anybody. I love you. That's the good news of the gospel. He says that is very personal, but it is not private. That the implications of it are never meant to be held in privacy. That's why we start with baptism, this public recognition. We see the thing that God's begin to do personally in our heart becomes a public outpouring of a life change. And so we see this in the letter he writes to Philemon. This, we're going to look at the first seven verses, and we're really going to look at, at Philemon this morning if we titled this sermon series. We'll title it Philemon. We'll title this first sermon Philemon. There's going to be a lot of Philemon today. Not Phlegm, not Philemon, not Philemon. We're going to call it Philemon. Here we have verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. We begin to see this story of a, of a disruptive gospel, which is really the, the, what, we wanna, uh, what we want to talk about overarching in this series. Is the gospel disrupts our life and our personal 
life and relationship with God, and therefore it begins to disrupt the community and family and the things that we are involved in. Things should look different because the church exists. They should be better. It should be good news to the community that the church exists. And so Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. This is his, 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 his welcome, his salutation. Is that right? Is that what you say first? Or is that how you close it? Whatever. You're, any English teachers in here? Good. That's a salutation. Uh, <laughs> to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Also to Aphiris. So hey, Paul always starts his letters. Usually they're written to a church. This is the only letter he wrote to a person in the New Testament that we have this record of. And he did not start like he normally starts his books where he says, Paul, an apostle, which is Paul, a sent one from Jesus Christ, which is establishes authority. That he says, I have authority because Jesus sent me as an apostle. Here he calls him a dear friend and fellow co-worker. He had this deep relationship with this person that he didn't have to establish. I'm an apostle. You need to respect me. He said, you're a beloved co-worker is another translation. He says, we are friends. We are in this ministry work together. And I'm writing to you, Philemon. And, and I'm going to write to, to Aphia, who is more than likely his wife. And then to his son, Archippus, his fellow soldier. Archippus, we find out later, was probably became the pastor of the church at Colossae. And so this was a family affair. We find that Philemon, in his commitment to Christ, was committed to family, that his entire family, he had shared the gospel with them, and they had all followed and stepped into the faith, and, and that Paul saw them all as family. And then he says, and to the church that meets in your home. You know, you, you don't find until the third century any historical evidence of a church building. 200 years. 200 years without a church building. They were meeting... In homes, they were meeting where they could and with and where they could. So the church at Colossae was meeting in the home of Philemon. Charles Spurgeon wrote uh, wrote this. He says he pointed out that apparently Philemon had a church that met in his house. This suggests to believers that their homes should also be a church. And that each home can have the characteristics of a healthy church. We say all the time where two or more are gathered, the Lord is present. You ever thought that, that your church, and, and to you fathers, husbands out there, spiritual leaders of your home, have you thought about this as my congregation, <laughs> which I'm called to disciple? which I'm called to lead in a church, that your, your home could be a church that's filled with worship, that your home could be a place that's filled with spiritual disciplines and scripture and, and a place that you could lead, uh, lead faithfully, that, that you don't have to wait till you get here and take your kids to church. You can be the church right where you are. You could actually invite your neighbors over and, you know, we do small groups here. Many of you meet in your home, and some of them are on our website, and we know, but they don't have to all be recorded through here. You can begin to lead and spiritually uh, disciple your neighbors and family. You don't, need, you don't need permission to do that. They were just meeting in their home, stepping out in faith and following Jesus. Paul gives them, in verse 3, he just says, Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Verses 4 through 5, he says, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people. This is his testimony. Everybody's got a story in here. And guess what? I forget sometimes that people talk about me. But everybody in here gets talked about. Good or bad, there's sometimes you are not around and they'll say, man, Jared, this, blah, 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 blah. And then sometimes somebody will come to me and say, so-and-so said this about you. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll never think of me as someone people would talk about. But at any given time, somebody is somewhere at a dinner table is probably talking about you, especially if you teach or you're a nurse or you're like, you're leaving a story, a testimony. And so you can begin to ask yourself what had happened in Philemon is his life had been disrupted and Paul begins to hear things about him. The things he was hearing was positive. They were positive things. He'd heard about his love for all his holy people. He'd heard about his faith in the Lord Jesus. He had heard about these things. In verse 6 he says, I pray that your partnership, that's a Greek word, koinonia, uh, it means community, fellowship, partnership. It means we are part of the body of Christ. He says, I pray that this fellowship that we have together in the faith of Jesus Christ may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. I read so many different translations of that, trying to get to the heart of what is in this one verse. What is Paul saying here? This is a prayer he's praying for Philemon. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding, deepening your relationship with Christ, deepening your, your, your faith and your commitment, of, of deepening your, your, your confidence that God is who he says he is. I pray that that happens, and he says, by doing it, he says, I think the thing that's going to deepen your relationship is the way that you share in this partnership, in the way that you give. In other words, what, what, after reading as much as I could about this, I think what he's saying is that as Christians, we are filled by pouring out. You with me for a minute? That the way we grow closer to Christ is actually by serving and sharing and sharing in our faith, sharing in resources, loving on our neighbor, being the things that God has called us to be. So I hope, I pray that this fellowship that we're in together, that it deepens your understanding that we share for the sake of Christ, that you grow closer to Christ in the way that you give and that you pour out, that in doing this, that in being Jesus, hands and feet, we find that this partnership is not something you talk about, it's something you do. We find out that church is not a building or a place you go, but a thing that we are. Barclays said it like this. This means that we learn about Christ by giving to others. It means that we receive from Christ by sharing with others. It means that by emptying ourselves, we are filled with Christ. It means that the poorer we make ourselves in giving, the richer we are in the gifts of Christ. It means that to be open-handed and generous-hearted is the surest way to learn more and more of the wealth of Christ. 
The man who knows most of Christ is not the intellectual scholar, not even the saint who shuts himself up and spends his days in prayer, but the man who moves in loving generosity among his fellow men. In other words, we don't grow closer by studying more and praying more. That is part of it. Don't say, man, our pastor said we don't even need to read the Bible. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we do grow there, but this is like, um, so I'm, I'm teaching this class at UPAC this semester, adjunct instructor. It's a business class on entrepreneurship, probably stuff most of you found boring. Um, and so I'm teaching this class, and I, they had a textbook already selected, and I'm walking through, and I'm teaching these principles of how to start a business and all these things. And uh, about halfway through the class, a few, like six weeks in, I started thinking, like, if I was teaching a how to ride a bike course, okay, we're going to teach some people who have never ridden a bike in college, they don't know how to ride, I'm going to teach them how to ride. Would I do that by walking into the classroom and be like, here's a picture of a sprocket. Look at that sprocket. Here's a chain. Here's how it works. Let me tell you about centrifugal force, the physics behind how a bike works. These are called handlebars. You're going to be on two wheels. This is a wheel. This is the spoke that holds it all together. And the air pressure in the tube, and this is how that works. And, and, and then say, all right, now you just now there's a thing called balance. And here's the physics of how you balance on these two wheels in motion and go. And like you go walk through all this. And they take a test, and they all get A's. Then I take them up to the top of Bob Amos. You got an A? Man, you know about the sprocket and the wheels and the balance. Jump on. They'd probably get to the bottom. <laughs> but not still on the bike. Can I encourage you to know a lifetime of going to church and studying the scripture and have an intellectual understanding of what verse is where. is not the end of the life that Jesus has called us to. That he is called while we are learning to be on the bike practicing. To be present with your neighbor who is lonely. To be, to be committed to sharing and not hoarding. To be thinking about the least of these when it's really easy just to think about me and mine. That to grow closer to Christ is not found only in prayer and study, but it's in the exercise of the faith and living out the life that he's called us to. In those moments, so if you're saying, I feel so lonely, I feel stuck in my faith, I feel stuck in my walk, and so I would ask you, when's the last time you talked to someone who didn't know about Jesus, about Jesus? When's the last time you stepped out and you sacrificed and you gave, you poured some of you out for someone else? Because I think that is in the place. That is what Philemon is saying here. This is what Paul is saying to Philemon. He's like, I see what you are doing and in your pouring out, I know you are growing closer to Christ. He's a little bit buttering him up, okay? We're not going to get to verse 8 today, but in verse 8, he's going to make, begin to make a big ask of Philemon. 
In verse 7, he says, Your love has given me great joy and encouragement. Did he say, Man, your speed recall ability to quote scripture has given me great joy and encouragement. Did he say your pious and holy living and how you've separated yourself from the world and you're so proud of your righteousness and your religious practices, that's given me such great joy and encouragement? No, he said your love, your love that's evident in the way that you're living, it's given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Philemon was a refresher. You're going to meet people in your life that are refreshers. You're going to, you're going to talk to them, and they're going to be positive, and they're going to be encouraging, and be speaking hope and wisdom and truth and and even they can, they can even correct you and it still bring you joy and encouragement because they're doing it not in a way to just be correcting because they deeply care about you and they're pointing you closer to Christ. And you're like, I'm so thankful for somebody like that in my life. That's a refresher. The opposite of that, it's not in the Bible, but I think it's a drainer. Made that up. So you're going to have some people in your life that refresh you and some that drain you. And you'll know the ones. You know the ones that you get around and all they do is complain. They gossip. Talk about everything that's wrong with the world and wrong with the church and wrong with the politics and wrong with the town and wrong with the wrong with the wrong with the just complaining, gossip, negativity. And you're like, now I just want to go die. <laughs> like it's hopeless. And then there's the people you get around and they have a vision, they have a dream, they see that God can work, that, that God's not, an, uh, he's the God of impossible things. He's the God that is present even when darkness looks like there, he is a light that, that he sees, that we see even when he's working, when the circumstances don't make sense. And this was Philemon, this is who we're all called to be is a refresher. To refresh one another, to, to spur each other in encouragement and spur us on to good works and to love one another called to be a refresher so be a refresher don't be a drainer don't 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 find yourself just wanting to get back into the negativity and the complaining and the 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 the, the, the. be a refresher as we get ready to close what when i went back and i looked at well what's this greek word for refresher It was the same Greek word that Jesus used. When talking to those people who were interested and curious about him, but were so wrapped up in religion, they were so wrapped up in the Pharisaic way of you know, following all the laws and the rules and going to church and doing all the things. And we looked at them and he said, I want you to come to me. You who are weary, heavy laden, those of you who are burdened, who are trying so hard to please God and, and you just can't do it and you just feel like every day you've got to try harder and you're always letting him down. Jesus says, I want you to come to me. I'll give you rest. The same Greek word for rest. 
See, I think Philemon had got that. I think he had found a gospel that disrupted his heart of religion and all the things he thought was supposed to be. And he had found eternal rest, a peace that Paul said, I'll give you grace and peace. I want you to think about it. Here's the, one of the definitions that it said here about this Greek word. It says, properly, it means to experience rest after the needed task is completed. Oh, man, when I read that, I was like, that will preach by itself. We could just put that up there. Because I remember when I was first starting to mow yards, and, and I mowed my mama and papa's yard, and I'd, I'd cut this big hill. Before they let me use a weed eater, they gave me a swing sickle. I think that's probably worse, <laughs> like more dangerous but I can remember working all day, and my mama would always make this lemonade, homemade, and she would squeeze the lemons in ice cube trays and have cold lemon juice, just throw it in some water and sugar. And I can remember working all day and having grass all over me and being able to sit down and look at the hill finished, right? I could sit down. And that experience of the rest that he's talking about here is once the work is complete, that you sit down and you rest. You see, in that example in my life, because I still mowing and work outside all day, but the thing is, the grass grows back. So you get a momentary, one evening, one time to sit down and be like, the work is done for today. Can I tell you that the work of Christ is finished? We say it, but we don't live into it. You live in a state of anxiety, of fear, of not good enough, of does God still love me? Has he abandoned me? Have I walked away from him? Has he walked away from me? The work is finished. The peace that he gives is this experience of rest when the work is completed. And Christ went to the cross and died. He took all of the punishment for our sins. And then he conquered death, the thing that we cannot do, could never do, would have never done without him. And it is finished. And when you get your mind wrapped around that and you've given your life to Christ, you become a refresher. <laughs> you say, how you can be so positive? I'm sitting in this place of peace that the work is finished. The work is done. Christ has done it. I'm enjoying righteousness that's his, that's not mine. And God's looking at me, and I'm in his family. Not because I straightened up and started going to church, but because I gave my life to Christ. And then I straightened up and went to church because I was grateful that God loved me. Then went all the way to Rome when I ran to the furthest place I thought I could get to. And he sought me out and found me, showed me he loved me, and saved me. Paul paints this picture of Philemon and acknowledges the gospel's disrupted his life, and he tells him what he sees. He's getting ready to ask him a big question, so this is a bit of a cliffhanger that we will look at next week. He's getting ready to ask him to not just accept Onesimus back, because I think Philemon's probably thinking that slave, Onesimus is gone. I'm never going to see him again. He had the right when he did see him again to kill him on the spot. Onesimus on his way back. He had already been reported, I'm sure, to the authorities. And if he got caught, anybody could own him, jail him, kill him. His journey back from Rome back to Colossae is a faith leap in and of itself. 
And Paul's getting ready to ask him a big thing. I know the gospel's disrupted your life, and it's going to disrupt this. It's going to disrupt your relationship. It's going to disrupt slavery, not by changing the systems and the structures and politics, but by one heart at a time, Christianity changed the whole world. It can change Pikeville. It should change Pikeville. It should change your family. It should change your home. It should change our neighborhoods. Not through petitions and politics and majorities, but through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes hearts, that is very personal but never private.